Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The next time would be the first time. Anderson, always a pleasure. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. George Floyd is now lying beside the mother that he cried out for. His mom died more than two years ago. Family and friends today laid their pain bare. I'm gonna miss my brother a whole lot. And I love, I almost wanna say I, to him, I love you. And um, I thank God for giving me, giving me my own personal Superman. My name is Brooke Williams. George Floyd's niece, and I can breathe. Long as I'm breathing, justice will be served for Perry. I still can't pull myself together to how he is calling out my grandma a name. I believe my grandmother was right there with open arms saying, come home, baby. You shouldn't feel this pain. No one should feel this pain. Everybody gonna remember him around the world. He's gonna change the world. Well, to be sure, their pain is real, and to be sure, it does reverberate the world over. And to be sure, the issues raised by Floyd's alleged murder were not buried with him. What we're not sure about is what happens next. Let's talk about that. Let's bring in Houston's police chief, Art Acevedo. Chief, thank you very much for being with us. Great to be with you. Um, what do you take from the emotion the outrage and the events uh, that led to what culminated in your city today in the burial of George Floyd? Well, I think that uh, we, we all take from there's a resolve, a resolve to forge ahead as a community here in Houston, as a community across Texas and as a community across the nation <clears throat> to take this, uh, this, uh, this death, this unjust death this, that should not have happened and, uh, and and to take harness the energy that has that's been created by his death to actually affect change across the national uh, landscape. So you have the officer who had his knee on the throat of George Floyd, and then you have three other officers charged. A lawyer for one of them last night, uh, the officer four days on the job holding down the legs of George Floyd. Uh, he said he is not um, responsible for the death of George Floyd, uh, that he wasn't sure what to do. He questioned keeping him the way he was uh, and that the senior officer, the training officer said, keep it like this. And therefore he is not responsible. What is your sense of that defense? I mean, first of all, I, I think everyone has a right to advocacy and uh, obviously they're giving a preview to what the defense will be for that specific officer. Uh, they're probably going to be uh, making different arguments depending on how, uh, what role they played in it. But at the end of the day, uh, when you see a man who has a knee on the neck of another man, uh, our expectation, I think, across the United States uh, in this profession would be for officers to intercede 
and to uh, actually say something and be forceful and, and to put a stop to it. So, you know, I, I'm not going to fault a defense attorney for doing his job, uh, but I think that they have a long, he has a long road ahead of him. Uh, and quite frankly, here in their city, we'd expect all of our officers to put a stop to it, uh, whether it's me abusing somebody or, or uh, a new cop. We all have a duty, affirmative responsibility to act. Absolutely. You have what they call a duty to intervene despite command. Uh, It's not about the advocate. It's about the argument. And where he's coming from, I thought was very interesting, not in terms of probability, but proof. He says, well, look, I've seen the body camera footage. I've seen what happened that you haven't been able to see that gives me a different context for what George Floyd was doing. And I've gotten to hear what the officer who I now represent was saying during that time. Now, look, we all know about preservation of evidence for trial. We know there are laws uh, down where you are in Texas, specifically Houston and in Minnesota, that preserve this body camera footage. Haven't we learned that these cases are about more than what happens in the courtroom and that the transparency is everything, Chief, and that people need to see the body cam footage? Well, you know, I think that's an interesting question. And I think if you go back to the Rodney King incident in Los Angeles that I lived through as a, as a member of the California Highway Patrol, uh, there was a lot of pretrial publicity. And what happened in Los Angeles, because there was so much out there, they took away that trial from the people of Los Angeles and transferred it to Simi Valley, a community that is much different than L.A. County. And what ended up happening? We ended up with acquittals. So I, I believe that we owe it to the people, for example, here in Harris County, that this is the most diverse city, the most diverse county in the nation. The worst thing that could happen is to have a change of venue where you would, because of the release of the videos and all the publicity that comes to it, where it takes away from the people of Minneapolis and puts it somewhere else in the state of Minnesota. So it is really a a balance, but we have to be honest and thoughtful and realize that every action has a consequence. And sometimes those unintended consequences ends up moving the, the Rodney King trial from diverse LA County to very conservative, uh, not so diverse Simi Valley, and we know what happened. The rest is history. Horrible, horrible uh, reaction to that acquittal. So we just need to just I, I realize he- that there's a place in time. I get the balance, and that's why the laws yeah. are in place. Um, but this is not the exception. It's more the rule. This is not a Minneapolis situation. This is not a Minnesota situation. It is not even an American situation. It's all over the world. Uh, you saw it in your own city. This resonates. And transparency is everything for people. And yes, you do have to be worried about polluting the jury pool and moving it somewhere else. But you have to be worried about a lot of things when you have 30 of your top cities having protests and uh, all, you know, cities the world over. So the counter becomes, yeah, but it's not just a local problem. It's a big issue. The other problem, Chief, is this. Somebody's got to look at the body cam video and make decisions. Now, technically, that should be you slash the attorney general for your state, because the argument is also we need trust. Somebody's got to look at the body camera footage and make a decision fast about whether or not this isn't just wrongful conduct, but illegal conduct. People don't have the trust that you would do it, that the police would do it, or that a local prosecutor would do it. That's why they want to see it. How do you restore the trust? Well, I think that when when the criminal process is completed, 
you actually do what we would do in Travis County, where I came from in Austin. You release all the videos for the people to see. And in our city, uh, we actually, in our state, we can actually show the families of the individual that was killed in a police uh, encounter. And in my city, our mayor, Mayor Turner, we've had several shootings here recently involving uh, armed uh, individuals and uh, and involving a conflict with the police where our mayor is actually seeing it. So I completely believe in transparency, but I, but I know our community, when we actually talk to one another, they want to have a say. And I think the say needs to be first in the court of criminal law and secondly in the court of public opinion. What if it doesn't go to court? What if there are no charges? What if the investigation says nothing's wrong, but you never know why they found that? You release it. And one of the things that I talked to Karen Bass today is part of the problem with our uh, use of force and the way that we deal with it is it's all done in secrecy. That in itself is a problem. We need to think about some creative ways to maybe have a more of an open forum in terms of the uh, hearings that go on to determine whether or not criminal charges uh, are filed. So there's a lot of opportunity to make things uh, much more transparent. And, I, and I'm hopeful that as we move forward, that's exactly what's going to happen. Well, I'll tell you what's definitely part of it. Conversations like this, chief, because there is yeah. no uh, us and them. There's only we. No, uh, I need absolutely. you. Uh, you know, I've been in your city, as you know, many times doing my job. Um, I need you to keep me safe. I need the police where I live to keep me safe. Uh, they are my friends. They are men and women who are better than me in terms of the job they want to do. Can't be you versus media versus citizens. No. We're either all in it together or we are nowhere. So, Chief, thank you for having the conversation. Thank you. Have a great night. God bless you, too. You, too. That's what it's got to be about. I'm not all kumbaya. I'm not saying, oh, let's just forget it and remember we love each other. No, you can't forget it because you love each other. You have to stay stuck on how you get to a better place and you have to expose the problem. That's not creating the problem. Incidents like this are now happening at the protests against police brutality. You've seen this. Now, what happened? She wound up getting grabbed, thrown to the ground because she didn't listen. The woman on the other end of that call, that cell phone camera video rather, is Dunya Zare. She was shoved to the ground, ended up hospitalized. She's now here with you and me tonight. Where's the officer and what comes next for both of them? Let's get after it. Charges. That's what's come down for the New York City police officer captured on video shoving a woman to the ground during a George Floyd protest. What happened? Watch for yourself. It's from her perspective. It's her cell phone that was being used. That's what happened. And even after you saw her push to the pavement, I think the most frightening part, at least as an observer, is what happens after. They just keep on walking. The officer is Vincent Dondria. He was arraigned by video today. He's looking at counts of misdemeanor assault, criminal mischief, harassment, and menacing. And he's the first NYPD officer to face charges as a result of the protests. Is that justice? 
What do you think? More importantly, what does the woman that he shoved think? Let's bring in Dunya Zair, joining me with her attorney, Tahani Abushi. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Chris. First thing, Dunya, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I've been better, but I've been worse. Uh, are you still injured because of what happened? You look like you took a nice shot to your head when you fell backwards. How are you? Um, I didn't know a concussion felt this awful. I, I haven't really been able to hold down food. I've been really nauseous and I, my head hurts and my back, but I, I'm alive and I'm grateful. Your shirt says BU on it. Uh, you, I get the double entendre. When you were at the protest, you were being what you thought was the uh, best self you wanted to be in this moment. What was happening uh, when you started taking the cell phone uh, video? Um, I wanted to capture the, what was going on around me. I could see that things were getting out of hand. I could see that protesters were getting hurt. Um, and I knew that recording is important. It's, it's always important to record what goes on when, when these situations occur. I didn't think that I would end up recording what happened to me in the process. The officer says, you need to get out of the street. You say, why? What's the criticism? You know what it is. You're supposed to listen to the police officer. He told you to get out of the street. You didn't get out of the street. That's what you get. I, I don't think that's accurate, Chris. I'm going to jump in here because Go ahead. The, the, the focus here is not Dunya's actions, but the officer's disproportionate reaction. And if, if asking an officer why warrants getting assaulted by a man who's supposed to have more self-restraint than an average civilian, right. then I don't understand why we even have law enforcement. I ask them why he should have been able to properly answer without getting violent with me. Now that point is exactly why I asked the question. And I'm okay with you jumping in, counselor. That's your job. Um, but that's the point, isn't it? Uh, they are in the business of what? They are trained to de-escalate. They are trained to deal with people in exactly like this. They are not trained to deal with it the way he did. And there's no question that it was wrong. It was wrong on a professional level and now, arguably, on a criminal level. The charges are misdemeanor charges. Uh, he has not yet been terminated. What do you think of the idea that he has not been fired, or at least not yet, and may never be, and that these charges are misdemeanor, which is not good, but it's not a felony. It's not the worst kind of charge we can give. What do you think of that? So um, the most important thing here is that there's not a facade of justice. Um, we are uh, cautiously optimistic that there was a swift investigation and arrest of the officer. However, um, regardless of misdemeanor or felony, the most important thing is that this doesn't end up uh, with a slap on the wrist. The NYPD has a problem with use of excessive and deadly force. Protesters have a right to be in the streets to assemble and speak their mind. And the focus here has to be on his disproportionate response. So justice remains to be seen. Uh, charging is the first step here. There are many steps that are going to come after. And I think that the district attorney's office has to be transparent and accountable and collaborative throughout of this process. 
Counselor, and obviously, uh, you know, doing you, you guys can weigh in um, interchangeably. It's fine with me. We're all having the same conversation. Uh, Dunya was assaulted for the very reason she was protesting, police brutality. Uh, there is a yes. tragic irony in this, no question. If he were to go to jail, would you see that as justice for him to lose his job, uh, lose his livelihood, and be in prison for a year or more? Would you see that as justice, Counselor? I don't know if jail is the right answer, but more importantly, that's not a question for me. Our justice system uh, consistently shuts victims out of the process mm -hmm. and either discredits them or takes them out of the decision-making process. It's very important. Dunya is the captain of the ship and her perspective of what justice is and what she'd like to see happen here is front and center because it can mean something different to different people. Mm -hmm. What I, I do wanna make sure is that um, like I said, this is not a slap in the wrist. And when you mention things like his livelihood being taken away, mm -hmm. you know, Dunya was shoved so hard. He shoved her like an NFL linebacker that she flew out of her shoe, slammed her head into the ground. And she felt her brain rattle. Had Dunya ended up like the man in Buffalo right. who went into a coma, cracked his head open and was bleeding on the floor, then, then what would be the conversation? And are we gonna keep waiting until people's lives are in danger because of the use of excessive and deadly force to take this serious? Understood, I understand your point completely. Uh, Dunya, uh, now there are allegations uh, about what you did before, I don't see any of that on the video. Uh, about what he said to you, that'll have to be evinced by witnesses about what he called you, uh, the ugly uh, phrase that he supposedly called you when this happened. But the idea that after being pushed to the ground the way you were, they just kept walking by. What does that mean to you? Um, it's difficult to go after every officer in that video, but to be honest, not a single officer in that video did their job. They're supposed to be protecting the people. They're supposed to stop someone if they commit an assault in front of them. There was just so much wrong, especially Commander Craig Edelman, who was his lieutenant. He was there. He did nothing. And he has been transferred as if that's a punishment. You cannot fix a problem from the bottom up. A lieutenant who could watch his lower officers commit a crime, hurt civilians he's supposed to be protecting, and do nothing about it, that is a problem. And passing him on to another community is not correct. If you're gonna solve a problem, if we're gonna fix the police brutality, we have to start with the higher ups that are allowing citizens to get hurt under their watch. There was no accountability from a single officer in that video. In that moment, in the video we saw, I understand why you say that. Let me ask you, when you're healed, would you go back and protest again? I want to protest so bad. I know that people are getting hurt and they're able to go out. Um, I'm, I'm a kind of ashamed to say I'm a little afraid. I um. I want to. I want to. It, it, it gets me very angry that they successfully made me quiet. That they successfully made me afraid to protest. I should not be afraid to. Protest. I should be able to go and and be there for the people who are putting themselves at risk. Those people are so brave, the people who are getting hurt and going back out there. I'm too afraid to leave my house. 
I'm too afraid to drive because I'm afraid I'm going to get pulled over and they're going to recognize me. I, I've been taking Ubers everywhere. So going to a protest, I want to so bad. But I, uh, I don't know how I'm going to get to that point. Well, if I may, doing you, you're doing a great job right now of telling a pretty good group of people uh, why you were there, how you feel about what happened, and what this is all about for you. And that is no small feat of courage after what you had to experience personally. Uh, I thank you, and Counselor, I thank you uh, for your shaping of the perspective on these issues. I wish you well, and I hope you always wind up doing what you think is right, because you think it's right, especially here, especially now. Be well. Thank you. All right. Look, none of these conversations are easy. Um, You have to represent what will be heard in places where this is discussed, in places where this is litigated. Well, this is what she did, and that's why it was okay. All right, you got to have the conversation. Let her respond to it. We'll do the same thing if the police want to come on and offer up their position on something like this. You have to have the conversations. Not easy conversations. It's what this show's all about. But you have to have the conversation. We can't stay where we are. The only question is where we go from here. We cannot stay where we are. Now, tonight in Georgia, another window on the problem, the reality. An election meltdown in Georgia has nothing to do with any of the Fugazi fraud that this president has tried to make you believe about. But it is exactly the concern of so many about disenfranchisement, keeping people from being able to exercise the right to vote. People in line for hours and hours. Calls for an investigation. We'll tell you why right after this. You know, there's no more powerful way to make a point than proof, okay? Uh, The president has consistently told you, mail-in balloting, oh, you can't do it. It's rife with fraud. It's not true. He made it up because he doesn't like it, because he obviously has some personal concerns about having too many people have too much access to voting. Oh, well, you know, you got to be very careful because I actually won the popular vote. Uh, You know, it was all these illegals in California that they're, you know, fake voters. They weren't supposed to vote. It's not true. It's never been true. You look at the cases. There have been studies done. It's not true. And here's the tragedy of the travesty that the president has created on this issue. We have real voter suppression concerns. One is playing out now. Proof. Please put the picture back up. Nobody needs to look at my nose. This has been going on. Georgia's primary, a mess all day and evening. Most of the problems have been in and around Atlanta. Why? That's what we're going to discuss. People waited for hours in the middle of a pandemic to vote. God bless them uh, for the fortitude. But why did they have to? Fulton County, which includes parts of Atlanta, extended voting by an hour tonight. Uh, The mayor of Atlanta is asking people to stay in line. It's a big ask. We know it's dangerous for you to be out there. This is the only type of widespread voter fraud we will ever see. Please understand that, okay? Not here, because you'll hear a lot, doesn't make it true. Just because he says something does not make it true, and more and more often, it makes it likely to be false. Forget about all that talk, okay? Disenfranchisement is the concern. It has always been the concern. 
Okay? That's what we need to talk about tonight. Now, we've been very fortunate, especially with the state kind of reeling from this and figuring out how to deal with it, uh, for us to have a, an official to discuss why it's happening. Gabriel Sperling is the state Sterling, sorry, Gabriel Sterling is the statewide voting implementation manager for the state of Georgia. Sir, thank you for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. Uh, good to be here, Chris, to talk about what's happening in Georgia today. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about exactly that. For some context for people, 2018, 87,000 people uh, prevented uh, from voting. A disproportionate number were people of color, young voters, groups typically favoring Democrats, Georgia. Uh, has closed 5% of polling places uh, since the Supreme Court invalidated the Voter Rights Act. Most of those are in black and brown communities. You get the point. People are concerned that what they saw today is a reflection of what they've seen before, which is disenfranchisement of minorities who tend to vote Democrat. Your take. Well, the reality of what you're seeing in Georgia today is a function of the COVID situation in large part. Uh, we did lose many polling places because it's summertime, so schools are closed. Churches opted out. VFW halls opted out. In Fulton County specifically, they lost 40 locations and collapsed many of those locations into mega precincts, which saw a lot of those amazingly long lines. We said this is not a good idea. You need to find other alternative locations. And those kind of polling closures and the things you're discussing are literally county decisions. They are made at the county level, and the state has zero ability to tell them not to do that, although this secretary of state has introduced a bill that would require, if there are lines of over an hour at any time during the day, and you have over 2,000 people registered at a polling place, that you have to split that polling place or supply more machines to do it. Now, what we saw today, too, was, as an example, in Fulton County, my home county, um, at a library, there were 15 machines that were sent there, but the rules of COVID spacing only allowed four voters at a time into those places. Those are the realities. Trying to get poll workers trained, because we lost oh, the majority of our poll workers, the average age is 70. So we lost many of those poll workers. So we recruited, the counties recruited new poll workers that they had to train during COVID. It's very difficult to do hands-on training with equipment when you can't get more than 10 people in a room. And we've been working with well, the Well, but here's the thing, Gabe. I hear you. I hear you. And I wanted to give you a chance to give a full-throated uh, explanation of it. Um, but plenty of people are holding elections during the pandemic. The office of the secretary of state in your state, as in uh, most, is responsible for election planning and certification. So this is your problem, even if it's executed at the county level. And two, lots of states have done it without what we're seeing now on in your watch in your major city. Here we, we had to roll out a new voting machine new system we, we had just started. We had two weeks of early voting, a presidential preference primary voting. And when we merged those two together, we launched the largest mail-in program ever in the history of the state of Georgia. Over a million voters have taken advantage of it, which has blown away the record turnouts we've seen. As of today, before we voted today, we already had record turnout for a general primary. Never happened before. Over 1,300,000 people. We have three weeks of early voting, including a mandatory Saturday of 325,000 people took advantage of. That was a record. We anticipate a record turnout today, which is part of the reason we saw long lines. And the main things we saw had nothing to do with equipment, but had to do with poll worker training because they couldn't do as much of it and logistical issues to the counties. We don't load the trucks. So items were delivered late, especially in one county that has a history of problems, which is Fulton County itself. We already had opened up an investigation because they mishandled absentee ballot applications. We are now expanding that investigation of Fulton and DeKalb counties because of the way they deployed items today. In almost every case, when our technicians showed up, it was a two or three minute fix because 
the poll workers didn't had not learned what exactly to do with this new equipment. And but isn't that still the, on you? I mean, you know, these are your people. This is your planning. And, you know, it's it's an interesting argument you make that you have huge turnout, Gabe. Hold on. Let me, we do not employ poll workers to those locations. We're going to work hand in hand with all of our counties. We're going to learn from these things. And the main thing we've learned, and we all agree, is going to be training, training, training. We're going to be better in August when we have our runoff. But you had the same problem in 2018. We, Chris, you're just incorrect. We've never had these machines before. They're brand new. No, they no, no. Never been the machines before. are new. The problem is not. In 2018, 87,000 people were prevented from voting. A disproportionate number were people of color and young voters. I agree with you that you knew that you had anticipation of a huge turnout. You had to prepare for it. Doesn't seem you did. And it seems convenient yeah, I, you know, that if you're going to be able to not handle the demand, it's nice that you do it in places that tend to vote Democrat. In those in those counties where people vote to tend tend to vote Democrats are run by Democrats. And they are the ones who set the elections boards. They are the ones who hire the staff. We have been saying for years there's problems in Fulton. Fulton County has paid hundreds of thousands of fines for violating election rules. They, it's repeatedly over and over again. You can go back and look. And I'm sorry to say it that way. But we have 159 counties, 150 of them had almost no problems whatsoever. And they all received the same level of training from the Secretary of State. We train the trainers. The counties are in charge of training the poll workers. We're all going to learn from this. You're right. This morning started out terribly, especially in Fulton County, some locations in DeKalb, Fulton, uh, and, and Cobb, and Gwinnett. But for the most part, once we got the, the issues fixed where the poll workers just didn't know how to handle this equipment, the line started moving. At the same time, when you have 400 people lined up at a polling location, only you only allow six at a time in, and you can only scan a ballot. This is the first time we use paper in the state in 20 years. We used to have the electronic machines. Right. So I get doing- it. A lot of, but a lot of states have made the transition. All I'm saying, Gabe, is, look, I'm not looking to ascribe animus. I'm just saying it looks bad, and it looks bad over time. Uh, so I'm raising the issues, and I'm giving you a chance to respond, because there are a lot of people tonight who may not get to exercise arguably the most important right we have. So I appreciate well, you answering the questions. The ballots to 6.9 million registered right. voters. First time ever. We've done everything we can, and we're going to have record turnout. And you're right. It does look bad when we started off this morning, but we started addressing the issues as soon as we saw them. And by a little after lunch, nearly every problem was off our board. And we're trying to make sure that everybody can vote. And we encourage everybody to vote because it's literally the most important thing you can do in our democracy. Gabriel Sterling, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Not an easy conversation for you to have. Thank you for having it. Thank you. Good luck tonight. All right. All right. The pandemic that's taken over the planet, by the way, uh, which is one of the complicating factors for preparing for voting and going out to vote. But we're starting to see things that we were suspicious of. Okay. When did this virus first come? We've talked about that a lot on this show. We always believed it was sooner than they've told us. New satellite imagery shows a little bit different story than the one we've been told. Don't believe me. Chief Doctor's here. Sanjay Gupta. Next. The WHO, the World Health Organization, is now clarifying comments made by an official that suggested people who aren't showing coronavirus symptoms are less likely to spread the disease. The official now says this is a major unknown. Let's add it to the list of things that is an unknown because we keep to see, seem changing our understanding of about like every aspect of this thing other than the reality you don't want it. Now, remember, 
The CDC says a third of those infected may be asymptomatic, meaning you don't know you have it. The CDC also believes 40% of transmissions happen before you feel sick. So anyone can think they're asymptomatic, but it's possible symptoms just haven't shown up yet. The WHO says the virus is spread mostly through droplets in the air. That's why you got to wear the mask. I know they used to say, don't wear the mask. It changed. Their understanding changed. The facts change. Your position can change. It doesn't mean it's like not to be believed. Fight's far from over. WHO says more than 136,000 cases were reported Sunday. That's the most in a single day so far. Then why do you feel that it's getting better? The key word in that sentence is feel. Now, some of the big population centers, like the one I'm sitting in right now, things are getting better. The rates are going down. There is good news. But we do have more intel on that front, okay? We're going to show you what's happening since places are reopening. And a question that I think is the key to how we look back on this situation in terms of what was done right and wrong. When did they know? When did this start? We've been arguing on this show for a long time that this thing has been around longer than they told us. Why? You and I have always known why. You keep hearing from people who say they think they had it back around Thanksgiving, back before the holidays, back... Now, what do the satellites show us? Chief Doctor Sanjay Gupta, next. Sanjay, my man, good to see you. Thanks for having me. How worried are you about the protests spreading the virus? My brother used the term super spreader, somebody going from protest to protest who has the virus, whether they know it or not. Mm. How big a concern? How long till we know? I think there's a real concern here. I mean, the, the, the super spreaders, uh, there, there's people, a few people who probably are responsible for the vast majority of spread. That's what we sort of find out in these big outbreaks. Uh, there are people who are more likely to spread it to other people. Some people say it's the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people are responsible for 80% of spread. You start putting them into situations like the one that you see there, uh, you have a real concern. Um, they not only are in close quarters, obviously, with other people, they may move around. Those people may then go to their own homes, their own communities, and that's how you start to see significant clusters. I mean, Chris, you know, we've been talking about this for months. Nothing about the virus has changed. So, you know, people in that close proximity is a concern. Outside, that's better. Wearing masks, that's going to help as well. If they could get tested like your brother and other governors have said, that would be great, right? I mean, the testing, adequate testing, widespread, easily available, would help uh, you know, reduce the spread of this as well. That's not available in all these places, as you know, Chris. Mm. Uh, and we're starting to get data now about what reopening, having people more around one another, what that will mean uh, in terms of cases. Uh, two weeks out from Memorial Day, we saw all the images of places, right. uh, people going out without masks. I'm sure we all have our own anecdotal experiences about what people are doing and not doing. Um, what can we uh, show now at this point? Yeah, I, you know, I think there's there's sort of a few things happening at the same time. Memorial Day weekend, uh, just over two weeks ago, obviously these, these protests that we've seen, states reopening, and then you add into that equation, uh, states are, are doing more testing, maybe still not enough, but that, that's going to add to the number of people 
who were diagnosed with the infection as well. I think, Chris, what I've been following, you want to follow the hospitalizations also. If you see sort of the, the upward trend of both cases and of hospitalizations, that gives you a sense that you're really seeing growing numbers of infections and, and more people getting sick. If you're just seeing increased cases, but the same level of hospitalizations, that's probably more reflective of testing. I think it's a little early to tell. As you know, you know if you take Memorial Day weekend as a point in time, two to three weeks after that. So I really, over this next week, have, have been watching, and, and you do see several states that have not only gone up, but have gone up by 50% over the last several days. Many of those states are states that reopened at the beginning of May. You add Memorial Weekend on top of that, and that sort of leads to this problem. And they'll push back with, well, we're testing more. Um, but the two aren't yeah. mutually exclusive. You can be testing more and have a jump in cases because you're having more contagion. That's right. And, you know, that's why I think you also got to look at the hospitalizations as well, mm. because, you know, people who are getting sick uh, from this in, in higher numbers, that would be more suggestive that, in fact, it's, it's, a, it's a more widespread right. contagion. Obviously, people who die, uh, that's another point in time. Now, quickly, I've been tracking this because I believe when the books are written by people like you, uh, we will look <laughs> back and say, boy, we had more time to prepare. We had to take this seriously. Anecdotally, you and I and everybody watching this right now have been hearing from people saying that, they, you know, I think I had it. And some of them are getting tested and seeing right. that they still have antibodies from months ago. Now, a new Harvard study says coronavirus may have started to spread in China as early as last August. OK, uh, based on satellite images showing increased traffic in Wuhan hospital parking lots and increased Internet searches for symptoms related to virus. What's your take? This is fascinating, Chris. I mean, this is a really fascinating study. So you're looking at these satellite images of parking lots, you're comparing it to years past and saying, wow, it's a, it's a lot more crowded, uh, you know, at the, in October of 19 versus 18 or however they're looking at it. Uh, it it's really, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to collect this sort of data. Uh, and I think it probably does mean something. I mean, uh, I guess in your legal world, they say this is circumstantial evidence. So maybe, maybe not the, the best quality evidence. But I think it's highly suggestive. You, you, you add into that something else, which you, I think you saw in that study, Chris, search terms for the word cough and I believe uh, diarrhea went up as well, symptoms that we now know are associated with this. Mm. So uh, people were getting sick. They're going online saying, hey, what, what, is this, what do these symptoms mean? They're going to the hospitals more often. It is quite likely. The only thing that throws a wrench into it a little bit, Chris, and I think we have the graph looking at the country here in the United States, really you see the peak uh, of, of coronavirus cases and infections sort of in mid-April here. It's sort of bounced around a bit since then. If it was really here a lot earlier, would we have seen a peak earlier? Now, I get it. We weren't necessarily looking because right. we didn't think it was here that much earlier. But still, if you, if you look at the, the overall growth there, you see it really start in, in middle of March. Now, maybe there were cases earlier, but were there a lot of cases earlier? When did you really start to get this exponential growth like you're seeing on that graph? Uh, it, it took a while to get to that point. I think you're right, though. And, you've, and I, got, I got to give you credit because you said this all along. You said, what, maybe in the fall even of last year, there may have been cases of coronavirus in this country. And now when you look at the data, 
it's probably correct. If there were people in August being infected right. in China, a big city, and people flying out, I'm sure they were going all over the world. Right, and it's not an I told you so. I'm right about things all the time. I don't get credit. I'm wrong twice as often. Uh, and you know that's okay. It all bounces out. What I'm saying is preparedness and what we look for and yeah. how we are aware, what our that's early right. warning system is, that's why it matters. And, you know, don't sleep on circumstantial evidence. The overwhelming amount of cases are made on circumstantial evidence. Uh, what is direct evidence is you always being a plus. Thank you very much. And why is it a, a direct evidence? Everybody knows it who sees you do your job. Thank you, brother. Be well. I appreciate that, Chris. Thank you. Sanjay Gupta. All right. When I come back, a quick thought as we go into Don about where we are today in terms of what happens next. We all know we can't stay where we are with things as they are. So what will make the difference? Next. Here's what I know. The key is the we. Us versus them got us here. Minorities are victims of a problem that the majority controls. Our leaders are not getting us to a better place, not by themselves. Our president is determined to keep us as divided as he can. The key is the we. If colors come together in a consensus of conscience, that's the righteous cause and there will be change. Why? Because politicians act out of fear of consequence more than out of good conscience. And if they see that we're coming together, they'll move. Look at how quiet the GOPers are right now. Why? Because the consequence they fear is Trump. Make them fear you more than Trump and they will change. Make it happen. Time for D. Lemon, CNN Tonight, right now. How are you feeling today? Or tonight? Uh, I feel worried. Mm. I feel worried. I feel sad for the obvious reasons of pain uh, that was, you know, you have to give it to the family and all that came together in Houston. They put their pain to purpose. And that was a beautiful thing to see. But it makes you worried about where we go next, because, Don, we cannot stay where we are. Nope. I'm not talking revolution and rebellion and riots and all that. I'm saying we can't stay where we are. Everybody knows the problem. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows. Where do we go? I'm worried. Yeah. Well, I check in with your loved ones and you're a loved one. So I'm checking in with you. And you know how I feel that everyone should be having similar conversations to the ones that we have um, on this very program every night, but also in person and challenging. It's not, it ain't always easy, right? You always say we come from completely different backgrounds and yet here we are, uh, dear friends, and that can happen. And my whole thing is um, after, this is gonna sound weird, and I don't want people to take this the wrong way, and I actually think the family would appreciate it. I was actually inspired today by the words of people who talked about George Floyd and shared their experience, and by the eulogy. I actually was, I am inspired that there is going to be a change. And I'll, I'm going to explain that to you in a minute, but I, I'm inspired. Good. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what we need. You're playing my role tonight. I, I just, I said to my producer, I know Chris <laughs> is always the one who's like, who's glad this thing is hanging off of me, who's glass half full. But in this moment, I am inspired even by tragedy. And I think that's, we all should, that's how change happens. So I'm going to see you later. I love you. And I want to talk to the to the audience now and the folks at home. Well, I will be listening because we need to hear you more than ever. I love you. I love you. Thank you, sir. I'll talk to you soon. So quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.